Hello and welcome to tonight's episode of Cryptique, where we work to bring truth to light of the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and even fringe science. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and write a review so we can continue to improve. You can email case suggestions to crypticpodcast at gmail.com and tell us about your true paranormal stories. Don't forget to tell your friends about the show because word of mouth goes a long way. And the more listeners we have, the more shows we can bring you. Don't forget to check out Ryan's movie review podcast, Movie Howl, and my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil. Tonight's show is about real-life ghost stories, brought to you from interviews I've conducted as a ghost hunter and Ryan's conversations with people he knows as well. Buckle up and find a safe place to listen. It's time for Cryptique. All right, hello and welcome, Cryptique fans. Welcome to part two of our Ghost Stories specials. I'm going to focus on stories I've obtained from eyewitnesses while conducting ghost hunting investigations. We're going to focus on Zombie Road tonight, and there's a lot to get to, so let's dive in. I believe them wholeheartedly that these people are not making these things up, and obviously... You know, we talked about dreams and maybe not being able to tell the difference sometimes. And maybe, you know, who knows, maybe the dream world is the real world and we're all asleep right now. But I'm just going to read it and I hope you guys like it. Evil. It lurks in the hearts and minds of man. It dwells in the dark recesses of our surroundings and it lies in wait like a venomous serpent preparing to envenomate its prey. Evil doesn't always just strike. Sometimes it creeps up and wraps its coils around its victim, slowly squeezing the life out. Whatever the case, evil is abundant in our society, and the cases we're about to examine are no different. Zombie Road is a real-life dark forest in the outskirts of St. Louis. It's an abandoned stretch of road full of mystery, intrigue, and the unexplainable. It stretches out along the treacherous bluffs of the infamous Merrimack River. The sordid history of the area began when it was a meeting ground and place of trade for North American Indian tribes. The area was also a place of fierce battles and undoubtedly death. Thousands of arrowheads and several Native American burial sites have been excavated in the area. Eventually, the railroad carved its way through the area. Dozens of men lost their lives during the construction of the railroad. Railroad workers were heavy drinkers. Violence was commonplace in the makeshift casinos and brothels that popped up along the tracks. Fatalities due to accidents during the construction were also frequent. A resort town would soon spring up where the tracks stretched through the area. It wasn't an ordinary town. It was summer homes built by gangsters and for gangsters. At that time, there was only one way in and possibly less ways out. With all of the serene land around Zombie Road, it's a perfect place for snitches and enemies to meet their demise. Back in those days, the police didn't much care who was responsible for a thug getting whacked. A steady flow of dead bodies fertilized the beautiful foliage around Zombie Road. During this time, farmers worked the land around the valley, and it would soon turn into a small town complete with its own church, school, and general store. As hard-working middle-class people settled in the area, they started to notice strange happenings. 
bizarre, untimely deaths, strange creatures, and more. Satanists. Locals constantly found evidence of devil worship in the secluded woods around Zombie Road. So next I'm going to go over some mysterious deaths that happened. Maybe not so mysterious, but deaths that happened that I believe contributed to the ghost stories that I will tell you about. So the first one is titled A Watery Grave. It was the end of a long summer in the late 1970s, and three boys were enjoying a dip in the Merrimack. As the shadows grew tall, the boys grew tired. But as with most children, they refused to give in to their weariness. The boys had been jumping off a concrete platform at the old gravel plant. It was about 12 feet off the surface of the water. One of the boys had trouble on his last jump. The other two boys reportedly jumped in to help, but it was not meant to be. The unforgiving undertow of the river claimed three lives. The river's not a good place for children, especially unsupervised children. There are no alligators, but beneath the surface, death awaits its next victim just the same. The next one is Dead Man's Hand. In the early 1900s, the Merrimack Valley in Missouri was a much different place than the affluent St. Louis suburb we know today. Tough German farmers turned the rugged land into a lush cornucopia of family farms. On the eastern end of Zombie lay a quaint little hut originally built by railroad workers. The man who occupied the hut was a frail man with decades of hard labor creasing his leathery face. He was a hard worker, hard drinker, and a hard luck gambler. He met with the same group of friends every Saturday night to play poker. Poker's a funny game because most players think of themselves as sharks, whether they're any good or not. Our friend was no different. His card buddies invited him to every game, not because they liked him, but because he was an easy mark. He went on drinking and gambling he and his wife's lives away for years. He gambled away his mother's jewelry left to him when she passed. He gambled away all of his weekly earnings. He gambled away his land and livestock. He was down to nothing. Nothing these men wanted from him anyway. He pleaded with them, double or nothing, triple or nothing. They didn't want what he had to offer. A rickety old hut that flooded twice a year, labor from an aging man. Then one of the men made him an offer. Bet your wife, old friend, you've already bet everything else anyway. The group of men laughed at the hard luck gambler, but they would soon see that the man was willing to take that bet. The bitter old man was determined not to be made a fool of again. One hand, all or nothing, Now our friend was a terrible bluffer, but he figured with his wife at stake he could bluff the men right out of their boots. He paid no attention to the poor hand he was dealt and continued the game, taking just one card as a way to convince the men his luck had changed. What our friend should have figured out by now is that he had a tell, a habit or gesture one repeats when gambling. Two of the men folded and went out. The dealer called with three kings, and our friend lost the bet. And so it was that our friend had quite literally lost everything, including his mind. He was a bit shocked when his wife gladly left with the dealer. He had nothing to offer her, and she was much younger than him anyway. His lifestyle and vice had cost him everything. 
He staggered out the door and toward the empty stone hut on the banks of misery. He had gotten away with half a bottle of gin that was on the counter at the gambling hall. He began to drink his sorrows away. The man saw but one recourse to happiness. This life, this earth, this god had dealt him nothing but losing hands. For once he would be in control of his own destiny. Maybe, he thought, the next life would be kinder to him. He would go all in one last time. He stumbled out to the barn that once housed his goats and grabbed a length of rope. By now the wind had picked up and whistled through the cracks in the boards. He limped inside the stone hut as thunder crashed in the valley around him. It began to hail as he threw the rope up over the top of the main rafter of the little hut. He didn't know how to make a noose, so he tied a knot around his neck and stood atop the table his wife had served him countless dinners on. In a drunken stupor, he stumbled off the table and the knot held true and firm. Soon there was just a body swinging from the rafters of the little stone hut. This story was told to generations in my family as a way to tell of the dangers of the vices of gambling and alcoholism. Now, I would have put it off as an urban legend, but it was apparently told to generations of several other families in the area as well. It was also said that my great-great-grandfather is the one who discovered the man's body several days after his death. I'm just kind of taking that in. The idea that it's, you know, there there are definitely regional, uh, I don't know what you mean, folk tales or cautionary tales, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, to find that that what you thought was just something your parents were telling you, because there are definitely stories my my parents told me that were just cautionary. Any vice, any sort of bad behavior, my mom knew somebody whose kid died from doing that. You know, oh, don't stick your head out the car window. My friend's kid stuck their head out the window and it got cut off by a sign or something. It's yeah. Like, or, you know, what, whatever, you know, they played their Game Boy in the bathtub and it fell in and they got electrocuted to death. <laughs> I don't think, you know, like I, I realized that when I was probably 30, I hadn't thought about these stories in such a long time. And I was like, that was all BS. Yeah. There's no way she knows just troves of <laughs> childless mothers out there whose children all died in these like, you know, bizarre circumstances, like all, the, you know, these thousand ways to die sort of situations. <laughs> But if I were to find out one of them was true, that would be kind of mind-blowing. Absolutely. Uh, And like I said, these are all, I mean, that one was told to me by my dad. It was told to him by his dad. It was told to him by his dad. Uh, But other people confirmed it, and we knew where the hut was and actually did some EVP sessions in the remains of the hut. Never came up with anything, but you know, that lends a little credence to the story, but it is what it is. Believe it or not. All right. This one is called Face of Death. In the early 1960s, a couple walks up to the bluffs overlooking Zombie Road just west of Shadow Ridge, which we'll talk about later. The scenes at the cliffs over Zombie can be absolutely breathtaking. The couple make the treacherous walk to the top of the cliffs to share a romantic view but only one would return. The man gets too close to the edge to get a better view over the side. He was unconcerned with the danger. This would prove a fatal error. The man slips and cannot recover, falling over the edge. 
The man's body hits the rock trail below, minus most of the skin on his face that is still hanging in a tree. The woman rushes to get help, relatively speaking. It took her 15 minutes to get back to the car and about another 15 minutes to get to a house to call for help. By the time rescue workers arrived, the young man was pronounced dead and the grisly details were never published. The one thing no one knew is how long he suffered, but all involved prefer to think that his suffering was minimal. And that's one that's been verified by three different people, and I actually have an interview of a lady. The uh, lady that I interviewed was very credible. This one is called Night Train. A cool evening fog lazily made its way into the Zombie Road Valley. Two very young girls are put in charge of a third, their beloved little sister. Now the girls all got along well and the two older ones went about doing young lady things, talking about boys and such. The third was a sweet, well-behaved young lady about five years old. The older two girls thought nothing of it when the younger one disappeared from view. What they could not have known is that she snuck out the back door to play, as children will often do. As she knew no better, she wandered ever closer to the railroad tracks behind her house that had claimed so many before and would claim so many after. Tragically, the train took the poor girl's life and released her soul to heaven. So this one is called Midnight Express. It was summertime in the Zombie Road Valley in the late 1960s and the stifling humidity had its grip firmly placed on the throats of the community. A man uses alcohol to escape the heat. A frosty beverage can really hit the spot on a muggy St. Louis night. Now the people who lived in the Zombie Road Valley are good old boys who worked their tails off, but they also played hard, real hard. Thomas Presley was no different. He took a walk one fateful evening with a bottle of booze and a pack of cigarettes. He decided to get some fresh air along the railroad tracks in the area. This would be the last walk he would ever take. Unfortunately, he had a bit more to drink than he was willing to admit. He took a seat on the tracks to try to gather himself and stop the nausea. If he could just rest for a few minutes. He fell into a deep state of sleep, then the inevitable tragedy. A train made its way over the tracks and had no chance to stop before it brought an end to his slumber. The entire town would mourn the loss. River of Death Ask most locals what Merrimack means and you will undoubtedly get the response River of Death. This is untrue. The correct American Indian translation is Ugly Water. Perhaps if the natives knew what lay around the bend, they would have named it River of Death. A man teaches his grandson how to check the trot line they ran the night before. The locals ran trot lines all the time in the 70s and 80s before the dioxin scare. The river turned out many large catfish and turtles on the trout lines. This is what the grandpa had wanted to teach his young apprentice to remove from the trout line. Both can be quite dangerous, especially to young hands. What the duo turns up almost sends the old man into the river himself. As they pull up the line, he smiles at the weight on the other end, thinking about the catfish nuggets they could soon be having for dinner. The reality would stave out their appetite as well. The water is dark, 
but when the ghastly white skin breaks the surface, the old man knew what they had turned up. A month earlier, a couple of float trippers had been dumped into the mighty river. You see, the Merrimack isn't deep and wide or rapid. It's deceptive. It lulls you into a false sense of security, and then the unseen hand of the undercurrent sucks you under to a watery grave. This was undoubtedly the canoeer whose body was not recovered. The pale, bloated corpse was almost unrecognizable as human. This was only the beginning for the young boy. We'll hear more about him later. So this one is Necrosearch. A few years later, the young boy who discovered the corpse on the trot line would again be asked to find the dead. You would think an approaching train would be easy to hear, but this is not always the case. They move with deceptive speed. Because of their size, they appear to be moving much slower than they actually are. A group of teens were playing on the tracks at the end of Zombie. They wandered out on the bridge overlooking the Merrimack River. In any case, they were caught off guard and tried to sprint back to the safety of the shore. The fleet of foot were able to make it back, but one of the girls was not so lucky. It is thought that the sheer panic prevented the girl from moving to the opposite side of the tracks. Nonetheless, the teenage girl was hit by the train and dismembered. The young boy from the trotline incident was by now a strapping teenager himself. He was drawn to the scene from all of the commotion. The authorities realized he didn't know the victim, and sensing the urgency of the situation, asked of him a favor. Although it seemed a grisly task, it was a mission of mercy. The area, especially at this time, was remote and filled with wildlife. The task was to recover parts of the girl's body which had been scattered by the train. Diligence was necessary because vultures, coyotes, and raccoons would soon find the body parts. He and his friends set to the duty of searching out the body parts. The locomotive wreaked havoc on the girl, but the boy had some success in his quest. He found a foot and returned it to be put to rest with the girl's remains. It's pretty gruesome. This one is called Death Bridge. Jefferson County, Missouri, 1998, just 15 miles south of Zombie Road. Two meth addicts decide to rob an elderly lady to pay for their next fix. The two men break into her house and savagely beat the senior. After taking what little money and few possessions she had, they decide that they need to dump the body. What better place than Zombie Road? The men wrap her up in landscape fabric and add some weights to the bundle. Then they throw the body in the trunk. They then drive out to the somewhat remote location at Zombie Road. They drag her out over the Merrimack and toss her over the edge of the railroad bridge. But the shock of hitting the cold water wakes the lady up as she was only unconscious. Yeah, that's pretty horrific. The police autopsy revealed water in her lungs and an even more tragic death than what was previously thought. Yeah, that's kind of one of those things that... Uh, when you see that in the news, like something real like that, it, it, it makes me think of movies like Death Wish. Like, I, I guess either the original or the new Bruce Willis one. But it's like, yeah, when the world's just getting so bad, it's like how that's just so messed up. It's hard to think about. It is. I, I mean, I can't imagine the terror. I, I, you know, I've heard that drowning is supposed to be a fairly easy way to go uh, from people that have basically survived a near-death experience of drowning, that there's kind of a sense of letting go. But to me, it just sounds horrific yeah it does 
Lover's Lane. Popular pastime in the zombie area, aside from hunting, fishing, and partying, is parking. Springtime, early 80s. A young lady and her boyfriend park on a gravel side street near Zombie. It's presumed that they listened to some music, talked, and shared a drink, and one thing led to another. The couple would never get the chance to take the next step. It was a cold spring evening and the lovers had the windows up and the heat on. They could not have known that there was a carbon monoxide leak in the exhaust. The carbon monoxide slowly crept in and laid its trance upon the unknowing victims. Again, the town would mourn the loss. Dead End Street A side road off Zombie is the site of another fatality. Wolf Trail is now home to a swank neighborhood of architects and lawyers. It started off as a gravel logging road which met up with Zombie near the Merrimack River. A young hunter was making his way back from Zombie where he was scouting for deer. The young man decided to make his way to his girlfriend's house on Ridge Road and he decided to use Wolf Trail as a shortcut. He made his way through the woods and saw a Dodge Charger parked at the end of the gravel road. He had heard the unmistakable growl of the Hemi from a while back. As he approached, he noticed that a hose had been attached to one of the exhaust pipes of the car. The radio was blasting and the young man inside was unconscious. He couldn't open the door because they were locked, and the window was cracked just enough to get the hose in. He frantically searched for a rock big enough to break the window. He found a rock, cracked the window, and turned the car off. He dragged the lifeless body out of the muscle car. But he was beyond help at this point, so the young man sprinted about two miles to his girlfriend's house and called 911. He showed the rescue workers where the boy was, and they asked him to leave the scene so they could begin life-saving procedures. No one knows for sure if the boy survived, but we are told he was presumed dead when the hunter pulled him from the car. So those are the stories that I got from interviews from people in the area, and We'll go into the actual ghost stories next that may have stemmed from some of these deaths. First, I want to take a commercial break. Hey, Cryptique fans. If you're looking to continue the thrills and chills with the True Crime Podcast, I'd like to suggest Exploring Evil. We cover stories of lesser-known serial killers, and some even have a paranormal twist. Some depraved, some insane, all evil. Find Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. Hey, this is Ryan from Cryptique, but I'm also one of two hosts on Movie Hell, which is a podcast about movies of all kinds. We talk about old ones, new ones, obscure indie films, and major cinematic events. So join me and my co-host Joe as we have fun picking apart flops and discussing the finer points of such masterpieces as the Austin Power series. Movie Hell is available anywhere fine podcasts are aggregated. Now back to Cryptique. So this one, we'll just call the White Lady. And this is a very common legend, but this is 
one that I was told in an interview, so we'll just go with it. The White Lady. Legend runs through the zombie valley like a fully loaded freight train. The tracks themselves seem to be a dwelling of one of the protective entities that roam Zombie Road. She floats up and down the tracks through Zombie. She is long and elegant with soft pale white skin and long silky black hair that floats in wispy locks but never tangles. She floats six or seven feet off the tracks warning travelers of impending doom and disaster. The story is always the same. She's wearing a white gown, like a ball gown or a wedding dress. They say it looks like she is floating underwater, only in the air. No one is reported feeling threatened by her or even uneasy in her presence. This leads me to believe that she might be a residual of a drowning victim, roaming, searching for the light. A house sat about 200 yards back off of Larry Elliott Drive in an area where a multitude of shadow sightings had taken place. It's dusk on a Saturday as a teenager gets ready to go to a party across town. Although the house is just a few hundred yards from other homes, the feeling of seclusion is undeniable. As she disrobes to get in the shower, she sees a face through the condensation on the window. She grabs her robe and runs to call her brother on the bedroom phone. Her brother got on his four-wheeler and was at the house within three minutes. He found a black, nondescript van parked off their long gravel driveway. He skidded to a stop at the house and ran inside to find his sister huddled in the corner bawling. She said that she was alright and the young man fumed with rage. Most people who grew up around Zombie are tough customers, and he was no exception. He charged out to the van that was still trespassing on his property. By this time his friend had arrived and he shined his lights on the van. There was a man sitting in the driver's seat of the van staring straight ahead with a shocked look on his face. The boys beat on the passenger window and the man stared straight ahead without so much as a blink. The brother picked up a boulder and rushed at the van like he was going to smash the driver's side window out, but he stopped short. The man does not flinch or blink. This is unnerving to the young men and they go inside to call police. When they came back out, the van and all the evidence that it had ever been there are gone. Had the Grim Reaper been deterred? It looked like that was the case in one way or another. Have you ever heard a story like that? No. No, that there's some sort of mystery trespasser who just vanishes. No, I've never heard anything quite like that. It's just different that they're parked. Like, I, I've heard a lot of stories about these mystery cars that'll appear on certain roads that are driving along or might be driving aggressively and maybe trying to run you off the road, something like that. And then they vanish, but not ones that are sitting there, you know, with no trace of them having been there. There are. There are some roads around here, Lebanon Road. They have a reputation for that, that they're supposed to be haunted and you'll see. And I've actually seen myself a car on that road that had no driver in it that I could see that went by. Some hunched over old granny. That Yeah, that's kind of what I assume. And that might be what gave rise to the stories like that. Is <laughs> There's like somebody's three foot tall granny driving around in their old Buick and... <laughs> using some kind of periscope system to see out but <laughs> well the way this story was told to me they didn't think it was a ghost they didn't think it was a spirit 
or anything like that. They thought it was a real person, just extremely bizarre, crazy, scary, psychopathic person. Like, like I said, they didn't think it was supernatural at all. They just thought, you know, that it was a regular person, just extremely scary story. The stories that scare me the most about intruders are like when they're living in your house. I'm sure you've seen those where it's, you find out there's been somebody living in your attic for a month or two or yeah. there was one a couple of years ago, this girl, she noticed somebody under her bed in her apartment, but didn't think the person knew that she noticed them. And so she made a phone call and was loudly saying, like, she was very smart and was loudly saying, Hey, I'm, I'm turning on the shower now. I'm going to jump in and get ready. And then I'm going to, you know, come meet you or whatever, like announced what she was doing and then went in turned on the shower and climbed out the window and called the police. And the police found this guy waiting outside her bathroom with like a knife. You know, that stuff is, yeah, that stuff is scary. That's why, I mean, it, it's kind of stressful. Like if I, if I realize a door has been unlocked in my house, I feel this need to search all the rooms and, and closets and make sure everything's cool. Cause sometimes, you know, most, I would think most criminals, they have something logical they're going for, but it's really scary when they don't. When it's you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Why was that guy just sitting there like that? You know, why was he staring off like that? Where did he go? How did they not notice? How did he not react to them? Right. That's the thing. Like if somebody's rushing at you with a boulder about to smash the window and presumably smash the boulder into your face, what kind of like sociopath do you have to be to just sit there and, you know, call the bluff or whatever? So we talked about your fiance's old house uh, that we believe is haunted. And these next stories are from a similar type place. Uh, it's called the Case House, and it's in Sherman. And it was a stop along the train tracks. It was like a bed and breakfast. And it had just continually been built on too. And by the time I had ever seen it, I wouldn't say a mansion, but it's pretty damn big. You've got the regular house. Then they had what they called a corn crib, which is basically a lifted kind of barn shed type thing. And they had a spring house. And the spring house is where they would hang up their meat and stuff like that. And it stayed nice and cool. And, you know, that was the only way back when the house was built to, you know, store anything and try and keep it cool. And it had a a spring that fed the back room and I guess that's where they would get their water from the spring and so my aunt not by blood she married into the family and her sister grew up in that house and they are two people that I believe have kind of that ability to see beyond the veil so these are stories that they told me they both had the exact same story interviewed at different times and they have no reason that I could possibly think of that they would lie to me about anything. I believe them fully. So we'll just go into those stories. She was a young girl lying in her bed dozing off to sleep when a train came along and woke her up. Again the house is about 25 yards away from the train tracks. The moon cast a pale light on her room. She noticed something that looked like a tiny black ball that seemed to float out of her wall. The ball stalled in the corner of the room and began to grow in size. 
As it continued to grow, it thinned out and grew appendages as it began to float toward her bed. It then looked like a perfect human. It was a shadow, but it had depth and texture. She let out a scream and the scene played itself out in perfect reversal. By the time her sister got to the room, the event was over. She told her sister what had happened. Her sister believed her, but didn't want to scare the young girl with the same experiences that she had had. So, if you can imagine something floating out of your wall and turning into a person, I, I can't imagine how, I, I don't know, I guess she didn't scream from the beginning because it, she was just in shock. That sounds almost like the beginning of an abduction experience. You know, kind of this entering through a wall and forming into a figure that almost sounds more, you know, otherworldly than than paranormal in the ghost sense. All right. So this one is about a seance that the girls had. So I just want to make it clear that Cryptique does not condone any attempt to communicate with the dead with the exception of a standard EVP session. Witch boards, Ouija boards, and seances are all dangerous because they communicate through possession. So if you're doing an EVP session and you put out a recorder and ask questions, you are asking the spirit to communicate through the technology. Whereas if you're using an Ouija board, you know, you put your hands on the planchette and you ask the spirit to move your hands to the letters to make it communicate. Anyway, just throwing that out there. We're not responsible for any possessions caused through witch boards, Ouija boards, or seances. Case in point, the girls and a few of their friends decided to try a seance in the spring house outside of their main home. Now, they had heard rumors of how seances were done, seated in a circle, holding hands, candles lit, and chanting. What they failed to realize is that the last element was communication through possession if only temporary. The girls went into the darkness of the spring house and lit candles. They formed a circle and took each other's hands. They had agreed to keep their eyes closed and their friend Eleanor would lead the seance. The girls chanted and Eleanor asked that a spirit come and visit them. The energy in the building picked up and the air in the spring house became thick and heavy. They continued to chant and Eleanor beckoned the spirit. Her voice cracked and fizzled as she pleaded for the visit. What she was unaware of is that the spirit was already there. Edie cheated and peeked. What she saw would stay with her for the rest of her days. Eleanor's face turned a pale white and her features began to contort to what looked like more of a man's face. Then the contortion stopped and it looked like a movie was being projected on her face. It freaked Edie out. She screamed and ran out of the spring house. A few more seconds and the spirit may have completed the possession. The girls laughed at what they considered the baby of the group getting scared and running off. They thought it was funny, but it may have saved them all from terrors beyond their imagination. The girls may have wanted to communicate, but if the spirit wanted to maintain its grip on Eleanor, who knows what would have happened. Edie says she has avoided Eleanor ever since that fateful day and said she always seemed a bit off. When someone rings your doorbell, you check to see who it is before you open the door. The spirit world is different. You open the door and don't know who will come through. 
EVP sessions aren't meant to open doors, just to communicate with those who are already there. Any thoughts? No, I just agree. Well, yeah, I guess, yes, I completely agree with, you know, being very careful how you interact with these things, how you invite them in, the kinds of permissions you allow them to have. Um, yeah, because it's, I just feel like it's one of those, it, it's literally like a Pandora's box that you just have no clue what's going to come at you. This one is called Old Blue and the Mummy. The two girls grew up in a house that had a couple of extra occupants. One was an apparition that caused a lot of havoc in the household. It had appeared to the girls on a number of occasions. The precursor to its arrival was always the same. Tap, drag, tap, drag, tap, drag. What was described sounds like a peg leg or a paralyzed leg, one step, then dragging the other foot. Frightening enough to hear, I'm quite sure, but the sight of it was terrifying indeed. The entity consists of a blue fiery core that has black appendages that reach out from the center. Once, as children, the girls heard the creature coming up from the basement and they could not get to the staircase without crossing in front of the specter. They decided to hide in the pantry. The doors on the pantry closed. The girls peeked out through a crack between the door and the wall. The entity approached ever so slowly and the girls described a hand that reached out from the glowing center. It seemed to crawl out toward the pantry door and the giant hand appeared to be webbed. Just as it laid its vile intention on the door, the girl's uncle walked in the door and yelled, hey! Instantly the apparition was gone but the fears remain to this day, the image indelibly etched in the girl's memory forever. The other unwelcome house guest was a spirit the girls just called the mummy. This was because the spirit appeared to float across the house, dragging its toes on the floor. It also appeared to be bound in a straitjacket or something that kept its arms folded in. The mummy was orange in color and appeared to be on fire. It was seen on several occasions, mostly by the older sister. The mummy stayed out of the main house and only appeared in the back room, but it was terrifying and the girls avoided that room as much as possible. So these are entities that they're seeing with some regularity. So I've come up with names for them. That's pretty interesting. It's also thematically similar to a lot of other stories in that somebody from outside coming in, typically some kind of authority figure or the owner of the home, something like that sort of breaks the spell, you know, you know, it's like when you see, um, well, anything that you see during like sleep paralysis, once you start to break through it, whatever that is vanishes or, you know, leaves or however it, you know, whatever form of locomotion he uses to get out. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's like they hold you in a spell. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of accurate because they usually come with a feeling, but yeah, that's interesting. And the, the additional detail of the way that they move and the way that they appear to be wearing something, it, it's very specific. Sometimes being too specific is a little suspicious, but the sound of like the thump and the drag you know, and the arms being folded in, I don't know. 
makes you think there's probably something you'd find out if you research that area or some kind of tenuous connection to the family, you know, and it would make sense if you dug deep enough. The rumor is that the house was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And supposedly, if you walked through the water at the back of the spring house, there was an opening back there that would lead out to another um, exit somewhere. There's not a mountain, but a giant wooded hill behind their house where there was supposed to be an opening for people to escape through. But I have investigated the property thoroughly and have gone back through the water to the back of the spring house and couldn't find any openings. Um, It had kind of caved in a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to spend much time in there because, I mean, at this point I was about probably 15 yards back into the mountain or the hill itself, and I was kind of worried about more cave-ins, but who knows if if it's true or not. Uh, The girls aren't the ones that told me that there was an opening back there. So apparently they didn't know about it, or at least they didn't say anything about it. As children, the two girls would often be looked after by their grandma. Now, grandma spent most of her time in the living room listening to the radio or reading. She was hard of hearing and was never bothered by the little games that Old Blue would play. But for the girls, it was another story. Often they would hear pots and pans banging around downstairs, but it was not Grandma making dinner, it was the ghost. The girls would go downstairs and all of the dishes would be out of the cabinets and on the kitchen floor. Pots and pans under the table were just the beginning. Old Blue would rearrange the furniture and cause lots of mischief. Aside from the time he reached out towards the girls, he had never been physically threatening. Lucky for the girls, any entity with enough strength to move furniture and other objects could do some real damage. The only damage he caused was by straining the relationship between the daughters and the family, as they were the ones blamed for most of the mischief in the house. That's just kind of funny. I kind of like the stories of a ghost who's just a little mischievous, because that seems more human. It's something we can all relate to. It's like, I mean, if I was invisible to normal people without any sort of extra sensory perception, I would totally do stuff like that too. Move things around, just, just mess with people a little bit, just have some fun. So we talked about how your fiance had seen the man with the hat. Rumors of shadow people run rampant in the land of zombie, but as a youth, I had mostly chalked it up to the ramblings of meth addicts. However, as a child, Edie and Debbie both told a story which was bone-chilling to the core. As youngsters, they were trying to get sleep in preparation for the early morning wake-up for church. Sometimes this can be difficult when you live 25 yards from train tracks, but they had grown accustomed to it. The train barrels through the zombie valley with no intentions of stopping in the community the railroad helped put on the map. The girls looked up at the light which cast itself on their wall every time the train went through. But this time, they noticed a man in the light that cast his shadow on the wall. Logically, they thought that he must be the engineer of the train on front of the engine, checking for something or doing some repairs. They looked out the window and saw that the light traveled uninterrupted to their window. 
Simultaneously, they stepped aside and looked back. The shadow was there on the wall again. It had on what looked like a fedora on its head. The girls were frozen with fear, as this was an entity they had not yet encountered. Then, just as it appeared, in silence, it leaped out of the light, never to be seen again. Just very interesting. A, a very short little encounter that doesn't really mean much. But I, I sometimes find those more easy to believe than some of the more, I, I don't know, the ones that you would normally talk about in a podcast like this, where they're around for a long time and they have this backstory, just sort of a chance encounter or, or catching a glimpse of them, you know, just seems a little bit more realistic. All right. So this is one that I knew we were going to do this episode, so I decided to hold it out of the Black Eyed Kids episode. But first, let's get a word from Anchor. Welcome back to Cryptique. This one we call Hide and Seek. Autumn lay its blustery winds into the zombie valley, and the leaves changed into their beautiful colors as they had done throughout the years. Pumpkin orange, sunshine yellow, and of course, blood red. Leaves clung to the oaks and maples of the land. The kids were back in school and cherished the free weekends to play the games they loved. Edie and Debbie and several of their friends, including a boy named Terry, gathered for a game of hide-and-seek. The children each took their turn as the hiders and the seeker. The landscape of the house they were playing at was beautiful indeed. A large, wide, flat yard that butted up to railroad tracks and was backed by a steep grade with a corn crib, a spring house, and a feed shack. The children played in the back of the house along the steep hillside. It was then Terry's turn to count and seek the others. He put his face into a tree and began to count. One, two, three. Edie and the others began to hide, and she ran up the hill and ducked behind an old oak tree. She peeked from around the tree, and Terry was right there, laughing at her. She cried out, You cheated, Terry! You cheater! Edie then looked back down the hill to see that he, in fact, still had his face planted in the tree at the bottom of the hill, counting. She turned her head and saw that the young boy had what she described as shark eyes. No whites, no pupils, just black and void of any emotion or feeling. The boy then laughed hysterically and ran <laughs> off into the dense foliage of the woodlands. Edie ran back into her house and left the others to play the game. This, she says, was the scariest moment of her life. That's so unsettling. The way it would laugh and run away. Like maybe it was testing something, seeing if it could fool her. That's really creepy. Like it's really creepy to... to I don't know, to, to not know what they want. You know, the usual let me in sort of thing. I need to call somebody or whatever the, the typical ploys are. But to have one show up just trick you into thinking it's one of your friends. And then when you kind of notice what's going on, it just laughs and runs off. 
that's like it's just practicing and just playing with you. Like I said, I think that the girls have some sort of way to see through the veil, but they never had any experiences outside of this property. So it's not like they they both live as of right now. Well, as of right now, one of them lives like two miles from the house and the other one lived in you know very close proximity for a long time and they never had any other experiences so you know it's it's the house one of the members of my ghost hunting group and i investigated zombie road at shadow ridge one night and began by shooting at the spot where the now famous shadow ridge photo was taken and this photo has actually appeared in other movies and stuff too but uh Anyway, it was very dark, but the infrared on my camera cut through the darkness and illuminated the area. I had a fairly large infrared emitter that did a pretty good job lighting up the area. And if you're looking at the photo, it looks like the people in the photo are far away, but they're actually, from where the photo was taken to the top of the ridge where they're at, is probably 30 feet, 40 feet. It's pretty close. Anyway, soon after we began to hear footsteps in the leaf litter. The footsteps were human in nature, at least bipedal. It was one, two, one, two. I've heard deer in the woods, rabbits, squirrels. It was definitely bipedal. So we used our IR illuminators to scan the area, but there was nothing there, and the steps continually grew closer. They weren't EVP. We heard them with our ears and there was kind of a heaviness that set into the valley. Just a feeling, you know, we didn't have any, any other equipment to, you know, test for, you know, EMP or anything like that. But then we turned on our big LED lights and scanned back and forth and couldn't see anything. And they grew closer closer and I shouted out we come in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and everything stopped so that was kind of scary uh, we decided to make our way out and on our way out I don't know if he heard it or not but I heard a distinctive female voice say help me so that was probably the scariest encounter I've ever had because it was just two people Nobody knew we were out there. It was the middle of the night. We weren't supposed to be out there. And we were a good half hour walk away from cars or anything like that. Yeah. And the voice to help me. Those are the kind of EVPs that are, are, you know, when I hear it as an EVP, that's always very scary. But to hear it in person, like there's somebody in trouble and something causing it out there. Yeah, that was audible. It wasn't an EVP. So I had a digital camera, and I was taking pictures of the bluffs above us as we were walking. I don't know if it was just the reflection of the light or the fact that it was kind of in the early days of digital cameras, but they seemed to be green and purple in the photos. But, you know, like I said, I don't put a whole lot of stock in orbs. Orbs are pretty easy to misinterpret. Yeah. Although I have seen red orbs down there that 
they basically look like lightning bugs, only they're bright red. And I don't know if there are lightning bugs or fireflies or whatever you call them in your part of the country that blink red, but I have seen that. Um, so anyway, once that stopped, I got a tap on my shoulder and I thought it was a drop of rain or dew, you know, from the trees. I got it like three or four more times and I thought maybe it was just my backpack kind of, you know, pulling at me funny or something, but it really, it felt like someone tapping on my shoulder. And then one of the times I turned around and just hit the flash on my camera. I didn't aim it or anything. It was just, you know, turned around and then quick flash. And there was a white fog that came up in the picture and, you know, that very easily could have just been fog reflecting back. But anyway, so that, that was a, an experience that I had. We did on another time do an EVP session down there and I said, I know you're here, just give us a sign. And a pack of coyotes began to howl real loud. And, you know, could just be coyotes howling at the exact time I said that, but it was unnerving anyway. Just the thought that, I mean, it had to be 10 or 15 coyotes howling. That's not a good sign. You know, coyotes are pretty, pretty small, but when you get that many of them together, who knows? Yeah, I, I know exactly that sound. There's a, there are track fields near the university I went to. And sometimes my friends and I would go out there and just, you know, it was just away from everything. So we go out there, I had a ranger. And so we just like sit around in the bed of it and just kind of talk and whatever. And uh, yeah, there'd be coyotes. We wouldn't see them, but we'd hear them. Mm-hmm. And that was usually our, our cue to leave. We'd start hearing that howling. Well, I can kind of imagine what it would be like to ask for some kind of sign and then start hearing that. But that's a little too eerie. I feel like every hair on my body would be standing up. Yeah, and, you know, coyotes can get pretty ballsy if they're hungry. And I didn't want to be around for that, so we hightailed it out. That is all I have for Zombie Road, but I do have one more experience that I wanted to talk about. Actually, a couple more, Um, and then we'll get to your uplifting story. I have kind of an uplifting story, too. Um, So we did an investigation at the Harney Mansion in Sullivan, Missouri, and apparently it was owned by a dentist, and it was kind of in the process of being rehabbed and you know it was a creepy place or whatever and in the back in one of the rooms was an old school dental chair that was like wood and it was uh you know just creepy it kind of looked like a an electric chair that could be maneuvered around that had joints in it and stuff to lay the person back and whatnot and they still had a uh like a surgical tray out there that had pliers and stuff on it. I imagine it was probably left there by the historical society to add an element of, you know, creepiness or fear or whatever, but it, it was unnerving. But we did an EVP session in one of the front rooms, and as we were talking, we could feel energy in the room. I don't know how else to explain it. It felt like it was swirling just around in the room. And the 
house was, you know, built up enough to where there was not uh, wind blowing in. It could have been drafts or something like that, but it was definitely eerie. And I got up and took a picture of a mirror, an old mirror that had been left there, an antique. And it was in the dark, and what should have been there in the reflection would have been me with a fireplace behind me. But what appeared was what looks to me to be a face, a, a big face, because it was a big mirror, and a, uh, I, I don't know, it almost looks like a curtain or a drape kind of covering one of the sides of the face. And I don't know if I can put that in the show notes, if it'll let me put a picture in there. But if I can, I will put that in the show notes. So that was interesting. But I don't do ghost hunting with a group anymore, but I would be willing to do an investigation. I still have a lot of equipment. If there's any listeners that have a haunted house, they want Ryan and I to come and check out or something like that. But I had a couple, one of my jobs was to do interviews with people. And we had like a 25 page interview list uh, before we would go do an, uh, an investigation in house, you know, to say, has this person ever you know, had a massive head injury or has this person ever experienced this or that, or, you know, what's the history of the house and things like that. And an interesting anomaly, I guess, is that a lot of the houses that we investigated are right by railroad tracks. And there's a theory that these spirits can kind of, I guess, consume energy from the I don't know, the tracks themselves or from the energy of the train going through or whatever. But in any case, one of the people that I did an interview with, her son was experiencing spirits in their house all the time. And uh, I was kind of a conduit with the Catholic Church because I had a a friend that was a deacon and he was going to be like my connection if we ever had to have a house blessed or anything like that. But this kid was nine years old and he had been kicked out of school for hurting other kids. And he had, you know, drawn pictures of what looked like shadow people in his house and stuff like that. And I was able to, this was in Columbia, Missouri, and I was able to, through my deacon friend, basically get him set up with a doctor's appointment with a Catholic doctor who had an open mind about these sorts of things. And he was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia and they were able to treat it with medicine and he's never had the experiences again. So whether, you know, it was schizophrenia, which I believe was the case, I like to think that I was part of him getting the help he needed to have a normal life. And another person that I worked with had a friend that was having the same kind of experience in his house where he would just see this old woman walk down the hall all the time. And he was scared one night and went to stay at her house and said that he saw the same woman walking down her hall. And she called me in the middle of the night and asked what to do. And I said, take him to the emergency room. And he was diagnosed again with schizophrenia and was able to get help and got medicine. And now he's okay now. So those are two things that I'm actually proud of as far as ghost hunting goes, because I feel like there was a solution as opposed to just saying like, oh yeah, your, your house is haunted. Those are the rewarding things that I experienced as a ghost hunter. Yeah. 
That's not something I thought of before, actually helping somebody with their mental health, if that's kind of the root behind whatever they're experiencing. Because before I would think the best thing you could hope for is to, I guess, just make people more comfortable, you know, make them more at ease in their home or, or help them understand what's going on. But that's, you, you stepped it up a little. All right. So you've got an interesting, uplifting story you want to share. I do. It's not exactly a ghost story, but it is another sort of semi-paranormal thing. Uh, And it's from 1994 when my grandpa died. My grandpa on my mother's side. And it's just real short, but it's something that has, it, it stuck with me my whole life. Uh, my mom and I forget who all was in the room. My mother was there. There was a priest there, I believe, and my grandma. And my grandfather had been, he had cancer. Mm-hmm. And he had been out for a while, you know, completely unresponsive for at least a few days. And when it came to the very end, you know, they had given him last rites. They were trying to be there with him through the end. And my mom told me that, because I wasn't allowed to be there for it. Mm-hmm. But as he was passing, he opened his eyes for the first time in, you know, however long. Mm-hmm. And looked straight up, you know, didn't look like there's anything wrong with him. He just opened his eyes, looked up, and then held his hands up and called out, Mom, Dad, Pat. You know, and his, both of his parents were dead. And Pat, you know, my mom's name is Pat, but my grandfather also had a brother named Patrick, Pat, who had died a couple years before. He had had a heart attack unexpectedly and just passed really quickly. But he called out those names, you know, was and and my mother said it was very clear that he was looking at people, you know, when he said each of the names, he looked at a different spot. And he looked kind of confused and then, you know, pleased that that these people were there and then was gone. That's gives us some hope. Yeah, I just find it a really yeah, a really hopeful thing to think about that at the end, you know, your loved ones, they'll, they'll come to get you in a good way. Okay. They'll come to collect you. Let's say it that way. Yeah. (laughs) I might, I might've known how that was going to sound before I said it, but (laughs) But yeah, I always like that. I like that idea that, that they're, you know, they're watching out. Or is it, evil entities pretending to be your parents and your brother guiding you to the place you don't want to go. Ooh, everybody will have to tune in next time to find out. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for tonight's episode of Cryptique, where we work to bring the truth to light of the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and fringe science. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and write a review so we can continue to improve. You can email case suggestions to cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com and tell us about your true paranormal story. Don't forget to tell your friends about the show because word of mouth goes a long way. And the more listeners we have, the more shows we can bring to you. 
Don't forget to check out Ryan's movie review podcast, Movie Howl, and my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil. We hope you enjoyed our ghost stories, and we'll see you next time on Cryptique.